What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by John Davey. John is the portfolio manager for Astoria Advisors that has the PPI inflation ETF and much, much more. Has about $1.3 billion under assets under management. So be sure to tune in as we dive into the overall macro environment what he's seeing, the development of AI, and much, much more. But as always, ladies and gentlemen, please remember that this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. It is strictly the opinion of John and myself. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I will be having a great conversation about the current market conditions, the overall macro environment, Jerome Powell and the Fed with John Davey. But first, big shout out to my sponsors. First one being Pleb Lab. So if you're down in Austin, Texas, go ahead and check out Pleb Lab. It is a co-working space with some of the best developers in the game. You can get in there with their lightning door. You can scan, scan, and use a couple stats to enter into the facility and go ahead and say what up to Car and the fellas. But if not, if you're like me and you're not in the Austin area, go ahead and check out the Nomad Pass at pleblab.com. You'll get access to all their internal communications, the private events, and when you're in town, you can pop right in. So go ahead and take uh, get one of those Nomad Passes. I have one myself. It's 100% worth it. I get to bug Super Testnet and a bunch of these other developers and just ask them a shit ton of questions. All because I got the pass and I have access to the to these guys um, where you know they, they might be getting bugged otherwise. So be sure to check out Pleb Lab. Check out the fellas and uh, go ahead and snag yourself a Nomad Pass. And then shout out to Idaho Armored Vaults. They are the best way to get access to the precious metals market. Bob Coleman and the team have been doing this since 2008, that allow, and they allow you to protect your financial assets and private property outside of the financial system from numerous risks, including systematic and counterparty risks. They are also uniquely, uh, uniquely vertically integrated, and they allow uh, you to um, not only purchase, but also have immense amount of liquidity so you can buy and sell the precious metals at the blink of a hat or at the drop of a hat. So be sure to check them out at goldsilvervault.com and tell them Green Candle sent you. All right. Now, I got a very special guest in the waiting room here. I got John Davey. John, uh, how are you, man? How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, for those in the audience who don't know you, why don't you give us a little bit of, of your background and uh, how you got to where you're at today? Sure. So um, I have been working in finance for about 23 years. Um, started out as an analyst in Merrill Lynch Quantitative Derivative Research in 1999, 2000. Um, you know, spent uh, 10 years at Merrill Lynch, and then I subsequently went to Morgan Stanley working in the ETF product group. Uh, it was a content role. So, you know, most of my career has been spent kind of like working on the ETF ecosphere, portfolio construction, looking at macro, kind of top down, broad market. Um, never did like individual equities, individual bonds. Um, so, always very much a, with a quantitative kind of macro perspective. Um, about seven years ago, I started the story of portfolio advisors. We are 
an institutional asset manager. We manage money on behalf of other financial advisors. Uh, we oversee about 1.4 billion in total assets. Um, our firm launched the uh, PPI, which is an inflation ETF, uh, in 2021. Um, that's you know exciting news. Um, you know, so we typically put out a lot of content. If you go to storyadvisors.com, you'll see all our kind of macro research, our portfolio construction views, and you know, looking forward to today talking to you about it today, Brandon. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we'll, we'll just dive right in, right? I mean, you, ha you have an ETF on inflation, right? PPI and everything else. You put out a lot of content. Uh, obviously, you know, I, I've got, I've kind of indirectly met you through uh, Twitter spaces. And uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a lot to talk about when it comes to the overall macro environment. So for somebody who's been in the game for such a long time, has seen, you know, so, some waves come up and come down. Um, you know, how would you describe, I guess, where we currently are in the overall macro environment or business cycle, however you want to get into it? Yeah, and, and I think that you just mentioned like the macro business cycle. I mean, that ultimately is like a big component into like our portfolio construction process. Um, you know, we do look at earnings and valuation and sentiment, but th those are the buckets. So it's, it's where are we in the cycle? What do earnings slash valuations look like? And then what is position and risk sentiment? And I think, you know, I don't feel good about the macro cycle. I mean, a lot of the indicators, you know, have been slowing for a while. Some of it looked like it, you know, a little bit troughed. Um, things like, you know, GDP, housing, manufacturing of late. Um, you know, but there's things like the leading economic indicators, you know, the yield curve's inverted. So that, you know, kind of is, is very troubling, very troubling. I think where the picture looks a lot better is things like, you know, Europe and Japan, which are much further behind the interest rate cycle, the inflation cycle. So I think you got bifurcation in, in the macro kind of cycle. When it comes to like earnings slash valuation, I think what we learned from this past earnings season is that, you know, earnings weren't, weren't necessarily you know, as bad as feared. So I think that has helped the market. Um, I still think that U.S. equities, you know, index are priced for perfection. Like they've got high earnings. The bar is set very high. Valuations are high. So like, you know, I think you have to be careful, right? Which is why we kind of tend to like more Europe and Japan at Astoria and non-index level kind of securities. Um, so I think, you know, the earnings and valuation is a lot, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, it, it's still bifurcated, but it's a little bit of a cleaner setup, especially once you start looking at, you know, international markets where your margin of safety is a lot lower, uh, is a lot wider because valuations are a lot lower. And then I think, you know, sentiment, you know, that's the the one puzzle of that three-legged stool that I just described, earnings, valuation, macro cycle. Um, you know, the, earn, the, the sentiment and positioning is just pretty clean, right? Nobody likes stocks. And the ones that do, like, you know, AI, let's say. Um, but so much money went to bonds, so much money went to cash, money markets. There's just this, con you know, view out there, like, why do I want to take the risk in equities when I can just collect 5% and buy a T-bill? Um, so that's a concern indicator. So that's kind of how we're thinking about things. My story, I just talked a lot, but we can take in any direction you want. But I think that's kind of how we're thinking about things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's a great kind of breakdown, you know, the three legs of, uh, you know, the way you guys look at things, but, 
Um, you know, you mentioned you're not super confident about the overall macro environment or you're not, uh, I guess, uh, you know, you, you, if you peek under the hood, right, you got potential, you know, increased unemployment. You've got, you know, a bunch of other factors that, you know, could open up and, you know, theoretically open up the floodgates. But it seems like, you know, as you kind of pointed out, the market isn't really reacting to that just yet. Right. We've had, you know, NVIDIA, um, a lot of tech stocks and other things like that kind of just just take off. So um, in, in your eyes, is the market kind of, uh, I guess, you know, almost projecting or kind of uh, anticipating somewhat of a pivot and things to open up? Um, and, uh, you know, in a sense, just kind of, you know, uh, being a little, um, I guess, uh, irrational at, at this time? Um, I, I think like, you know, what's happening is that like, earn, so, you know, if you study like the kind of profit cycle, the earnings cycle, so once earnings start to contract, which we are still in a profits recession here in the U.S., once earnings contract, people will buy growthier companies, companies that can grow their earnings no matter what em environment we're in. So that definitely is tech stocks. Um, I mean, some of these businesses just like the highest quality, blue chip, you know, things like you know, Nvidia, Facebook, Google. I think we're masquerading this AI thing. Um, but in reality, it's just this rotation and value into growth because the profit cycle is accelerating and those tech growth companies can sustain their earnings growth. Um, you know, now that we know the trajectory of interest rates and we know what the, the shape of the curves look like, like I think companies can like, and that's what they did, right? Facebook, Google, they all laid out a lot of their employees. You know, they, they short up their balance sheet. It's not like all of a sudden in Q2, they said, okay, we're going to pivot to AI. Like they've been doing this stuff for a while. It's this larger macro narrative about this rotation out of value into growth. So, you know, look, I mean, interest rates are the ultimate equalizer, right? It allows you to compare all these different asset classes, whether it's stocks, bonds, you know, you know, multifamily property. So, you know, now that we know what the interest rate cycle looks like, you know, I think like, you know, you can project and make decisions, you know, from an investment standpoint, and I think that's what's happened with tech stocks. Like they've proven that they can like sustain, you know, the, the market environment with their layoffs. And now, you know, people are kind of gravitating to the AI plunge. But I highly doubt AI is going to kind of save the economy from the recession. Um, you know, so I think you have to be careful. And if you're going to increase risk in your portfolio, I would suggest doing it through, you know, European equities, you know, Japanese equities. And there's ETF tickers we can talk about to play those views. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know if you want to dive into the ETF or to the to some of the tickers, you know, be more than uh, you're, you're more than welcome to. But, um, you know, I, I guess you brought up AI. So I kind of want to talk a little bit more on that because you said, you know, you don't necessarily think that that's going to, you know, save the economy in a sense. And, you, you know, I agree with you. But um, in a counterpoint, in a sense, I, I think that you know, we've seen a few different booms, right? We've seen the dot-com boom. It seems like, uh, you know, everything was kind of the, the tech uh, growth uh, kind of stocks were booming from like 2010 to 2020-ish time. Um, and then out of that, it seemed like, you know, there was like the recent crypto boom where any company that was doing something related to crypto uh, seemed to, you know, get a massive evaluation. Um, and now I feel like we're kind of getting to like an AI boom where every single company is getting into or like name dropping AI in their earnings and their, their stock prices are taking off. Um, do you kind of see it in that sense too? Or do you think AI is one of those things that's uh, 
you know, going to stick around and those who, you know, obviously do it well are, are going to be, be the winners in a sense, but um, you know, it's not going to be one of these like boomer bust kind of uh, run-ups. You know, it's funny a couple of years ago. So AI, AI again is not all of a sudden, it is a big buzzword now, but it has been a buzzword for a while as crypto has been. And I said years ago that if I had to pick and choose, you know, between AI with a company like, you know, Google or Facebook or NVIDIA or whatever company is dedicated towards, you know, building better, you know, kind of AI over crypto. Like I, I, I was much more bullish on like technology and artificial intelligence, particularly from, you know, the big bellwethers like NVIDIA, Microsoft, just because, you know, they've got so much free cash flow. They can take these bets. They can, you know, Microsoft can take 10 billion and put it into open AI and, you know, try and kind of combat, you know, Google with their search function. So like, yeah, I, I don't think it's a fad per se. I think it's here to stay, but the price of what you pay at, right? Like what price are you getting, you know, into, right? Like we own a lot of those companies that we've been talking about in AI, like Microsoft, Nvidia. It's part of our quantitative stock portfolios. So we've owned them for a while. Like, so we're the beneficiary of this recent uptick, but I don't know if I'd be putting money now. If anything, I'd look be trimming just because I think, you know, these things are at like nosebleed valuations. Yeah, and I gotcha. And it does seem like it, that that could potentially be, be the case with what's under the hood. But I kind of want to dive into the uh, inflation ETF that you have. Um, you don't have to necessarily dive into the full holdings or anything like that. But um, in a sense, you know, there has been a, a very inflationary environment. You know, we've had, uh, you know, CPI at uh, I think we just had cracked under five this past month. Um, but, you know, it's been all the way up to close to double digits for the past, uh, you know, six to nine months ish time. So um, and, and people have really been feeling that pain. So. Um, in the overall, I guess, like inflation aspect and how you look at certain companies or what to put in this ETF, um, you, know, you know, how do you go about that? Are you looking at it more so of, you know, I don't know, like consumer staples or something along those lines generally does well in an inflation, uh, an inflationary time? Or do you look at, I guess, a little bit more specific to, to what's going on in, I guess, each inflationary cycle? Um, or business cycle, so to speak, where, you know, obviously when, when there is a recession, there, there is some winners and there is some, uh, there is some major losers. So there's always some time to find some winners in the market. But, um, you know, this could definitely be, you know, one of those times that it, it can be pretty interesting with, you know, the, the overall scenario that we have right now. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I think that. Oh, John, I think we lost you. I don't know where you you're see at. that like energy materials, industrial stocks typically do the best. Um, you know, when you get elevated levels of inflation, um, you know, financials are also up there in terms of like, you know, the statistical relationship between like high inflation and perform relative performance. So, you know, our fund, it is actively managed. I think inflation is a highly nuanced area. I do think that like, you gotta be active you know, it is a multi-asset ETF. So we're looking at um, things like, you know, energy stocks, material stocks, industrial stocks, um, have an allocation towards tips um, just because we think that can like buffer your portfolio volatility. And then, um, you know, we'll have some precious metals in there, things like gold, silver, 
uh, which also have demonstrated sensitivity to high inflation. So, you know, it, it's it's a multi-asset ETF. It's about 70, 75-ish percent equities, uh, 10, 15% precious metals, and then, you know, 10, 15% tips. And it, it's active managed. I think that's the key. So the fund, you know, past performance on indicative future results, you know, the fund was up 4% last year when the S&P was down 18. So it did give you that inflation protection. Inflation has come down uh, this year. Obviously, S&P is being driven by these AI stocks and technology stocks. You know, PPI is down about like three kind of percent today. But what's encouraging is that, you know, like the, the market, you know, we're, we're filming this podcast on June 2nd after the non-farm payroll days. Um, and, you know, like the, the fund is up quite strong today, which is nice, you know, and I think what's happened is that if the recession has been punted for now and it's going to be delayed, if there's, you know, a softer landing, like I think that gives a catch-up trade for some of these cyclicals, um, which has just been beaten up. So like broad-based commodities are down, you know, 10, 15 percent. You know, any any sent any commodity that's very sensitive to China is down even more than that. Um, you know, the energy sector year to date, if you look at ETF flows, is down like eight billion. The XLE ETF is down like I think it's down like eight, nine, ten percent year to date. So, um, and that's what you see today. Like, so markets are strong, and what's leading today is energy and material stocks. XLE, XLB, these things are up like almost three percent today. So, you know. I'm encouraged by the price action. I think like the way we've always viewed PPI is that it should be an inflation protection. It, it should be in your alternatives bucket, you know, three to 4%. Um, from a very high level standpoint, Brandon, I'll, I'll tell you that like every portfolio was, and even now today is still dominant with tech and growth stocks, just cause like the S and P market cap, you know, I mean, just look at Microsoft, um, if you look at Microsoft, it is, um, uh, you know, Microsoft and Apple is about like 15% of the S&P. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it does big concentration risks. So, so we're, we're concerned with that. And, you know, we just think that like, they'll eventually be, um, you know, a new market leadership in the next three to five years, your portfolio should evolve and should have some, you know, things like energy stocks, material stocks, where there's just not a lot of broad representation. So, you know, we we also looked at a PPI as kind of like, you know, it's a it's an alternative and it's a it's a satellite position against your core because your core is just so tech and growth heavy. Yeah, and it does definitely seem like it is pretty, you know, tech and uh, growth heavy, uh, obviously, in like the S&P 500. So it is, you know, in a sense, good to d- diversify and kind of get away from that, you know, because, if something were to happen, obviously, you know, those, although they, they have the highest swings up, it seems like tech volatility also can, you know, hurt you in the other direction as well. Um, but that kind of leads me to, you know, I guess that the current market conditions, um, you know, it, it does seem like there is a lot of, uh, I guess, the narrative around the volatility in the market, right? You're seeing a bunch of, you know, various stocks like shoot up, uh, you know, double digit percentages in a day. Um, and maybe it's just because it's getting more noticed now. But in a sense, do you think that the the overall, I guess, market volatility is, uh, you know, greater now than, than you've seen it in, uh, I guess, years past? I don't think market volatility, I mean, like the VIX is low, but like, I think like what I'm concerned about is so much money went to passive, like everyone wants to be indexed. Nobody wants to use active 
managers anymore. And, you know, there's like a, a little bit of, you know, lack of price discovery at times. So that's troubling because, you know, not, not only is so much passive, so much money is passive and indexed, um, then there's like this r rise of like momentum CTA trade. And so these moves get very uh, exacerbated on the way up and the way down. Um, so I'm just concerned about market microstructure more so than like volatility. I mean, like there's always going to be more volatility when you have like periods of like very elevated inflation or, you know, major kind of risk off periods. So, you know, I, I think VIX is going to be, you know, I mean, like VIX has been low for a while. There's also a lot of like, you know, option overriding strategy, people selling, you know, index calls against the S&P to try and extract. I mean, what was the biggest story last year in the SM, in the ETF world? Right? I'm square in the ETF space. The biggest is like this Jeppy ETF took in like $20 billion of, of, um, of, of inflows. It's an option overriding ETF. It owns, you know, high quality stocks and it sells like index calls against S&P. Like that was the biggest story. So it just shows you like how much concern there is in the market, you know, because when you sell calls, you clip your upside. So, you know, I think that kind of says it a lot of what people think about the market. Yeah, and that, that, that's definitely a fair point. Um, but I, I kind of want to dive into to that a little bit more about, um, you know, what, what people are kind of seeing in the market, because, you know, it's not only, I guess, uh, them looking at the various tech stocks and kind of, you know, how those are reacting. But it seems like everybody's keeping a closer eye on the, the banking sector now, um, especially with, um, you know, the massive amounts of bank failures. Obviously, we got we had Silicon Valley Bank um, and, and a few others that everybody, I'm sure, knows the name of at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm curious on how you're looking at these bank failures and, uh, you know, maybe uh, in a sense, like some of these companies that are holding their money or accounts in some of these regional banks, it seems like a lot of them are, you know, either A, like moving it to uh, J.P. Morgan Chase kind of thing, or um, they're getting caught in the wind and uh, potentially need to get, you know, bailed out by, uh, you know, the Fed or or however, you, I guess you want to kind of look at that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like, you know, it was scary a couple of months ago, but like that systemic risk seems to be a lot lowered. Um, so I'm not worried about regional banks, you know, you know, I mean, like credit is tightening, like lending standards are going to get tighter. It'll lead to less credit growth, you know, a, a weaker economy. So there's all these stats out about like credit lending standards and what impact that's going to do to the economy. Um, so I was worried about, you know, a couple months ago, if there was going to be more of a systemic risk from like, you know, Silicon Valley, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Um, what's concerning in general is how Silicon Valley was, I think the 18 largest bank and basically went under in the span of like a week. That's very troubling. Uh, it makes you wonder why anyone should keep their money outside of like the big four banks, JP Morgan, Bank of America, let's say. So I, I think, you know, my vantage point on that is like there's bigger fish to fry and more risk, more concern out there. So that, that's what I'm focused on as the slowdown of the macro economy you know, where we are in the cycle, the high earnings risk in the U.S., rotating out of the U.S. into international markets. How do you get that portfolio in the next three to five years, which is going to look different from the last 10 years, which is all tech and growth. Everyone wants to buy AI, which is basically tech and growth, which is last year's, last decade's trade. So th those are the things that kind of give me more concern. 
Yeah, that's fair. And that, that, that's definitely a fair point, you know, on, uh, I guess, repositioning the portfolio for for what's ahead. And so that that leads me perfectly into to what's the next, uh, I guess, kind of kind of cycle there, because you you mentioned uh, AI being, I guess, the new tech and growth of the next three to five years. Um, so, I mean, you don't have to give away all of your secret sauce necessarily, but are there certain sectors that you're keeping your eye on for, uh, I guess, the next three to five years that you think, um, you know, might have, uh, you, might, you might be able to find some alpha in? Uh, so, you know, I, I think like, you know, tech is going to definitely like make everyone's life easier, you know, more productive. I think the valuations for the AI stocks are just at a nosebleeds level. The broad-based like Russell One growth, which, you know, it's not exactly just tech. I mean, there's other sectors in there. It's not too concerning the valuation, like the P ratio, like kind of low 20s. Um, you know, the, the, these things were like at 30, 35, you know, some time ago, you know, before last year's meltdown. So I just think like, you know, if I'm going to increase the risk of the portfolio, which is something that we've tried to do this year because we were pretty, you know, we had like a lot lower beta than the market. Um, and we've tried to think about other ways to kind of increase the risk, increase our beta. So whether it's adding like, you know, things like, you know, mid-cap, adding international equities like IHDG, you know, Japan is an interesting place, right? Nikkei's, you know, 30-year high, you know, DXJ is an interesting ETF to play that. Um, you know, we're trying to figure out other ways to kind of get risk in a portfolio and just play the momentum in the sense that, you know, there's now going to be a chase, right? Like we're arguing for a chase at our firm, you know, which is like, okay, the S and P is up 10, up 12, but it's all seven stocks that are driving it. So the equal weight S and P is probably flat to now up one or two, depending on, you know, what happens today, how we close, but you know, like how do you get risk and play momentum if we're going to now be in this like green light zone for stocks, which I think there will be because now debt ceiling is on the control you know, we talked about systemic risk with banks on the control. So, yeah, I mean, the view that we have is like, let's get risk in the portfolio, but let's look at it through things like international equities. Or if the recession really is punted down the road, then I would say, um, you know, we, we, would, we would, you know, kind of think that you should take another bite at the apple for things like PPI, which is down three, four, things like BCI, the broad-based commodity TIF, which is down 10 you know, energy equities down eight or nine, you know, things that have not benefited a, a lot from this year because everyone thought we were going to go into a deflationary risk-off environment. So if that's not the case, then there should be catch-up trade. And I'm encouraged with today's price action with what we're seeing with these cyclicals outperforming. Yeah, and I mean, it, it does definitely seem like, it, you know, the recession in a sense has been almost like punted down the road. I kind of like the way you worded that. And I want to dive into that a little bit more um, because, you know, it, it seems like the narrative around the Fed or Jerome Powell, whenever he gets up, is like continuing to raise interest rates higher for longer, more pain ahead, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it seems like the market's been essentially screaming for a pivot for the past few months. And people, you know, I guess uh, you, you would probably know just as much as I do on these Twitter spaces and everything else, like everybody's screaming for it or doesn't understand why Powell continues to raise rates. Um, so uh, I, I guess in that sense, do you think that that Powell is going to, I guess, continue continue this trend to, to raise rates and 
um, I guess it's theoretically like cause a recession a little bit earlier, or do you think, uh, you know, maybe the act of pivoting or, you know, switching up course or pausing to raise rates will essentially punt what seems to be ahead or this recession that seems to be ahead down farther down the road? You, you know, uh, like, in, so we've been able to increase interest rates by, you know, 500, you know, 500 basis points in the last, you know, year, let's say, uh, and the economy, you know, is slowing, but it, there's still a lot of pent up consumer demand. Um, although I think that's starting to wane, you know, I, I think ultimately like we're going to have to get to like six and a half, seven percent on fed funds for the economy to really kind of get to like 2% inflation. But I don't think the fed's going to do that. I think what the fed does ultimately is say, look, you know, we're going to get this economy, you know, slower. We're going to get inflation, not down to two to like three, three and a half. We're just going to live in a higher inflation world uh, for a while. So, I think they stop, you know, like five and a half, you know, five and three quarters. Um, but, you know, they're data dependent, right? So as the data comes in, they'll see like, okay, you know, can we go another 25, another 50 basis points? So I think it's like, you know, it's fun to talk about, but I don't think anyone should be like making investment decisions based on like what the Fed may or may not do like in three, four months, because they don't know what they're going to do, right? It all depends on the data. Do you think that there's an issue with that? Because, you know, a lot of the data that they've mentioned, it, it seems like it's either a like kind of survey data and it's and it's backwards looking. Right. I mean, like unemployment, that's uh, seems like it's going to be kind of a, I guess, reactionary metric. Right. So, I mean, I, I know Jerome Powell, like he's got a very tough job and I do not envy his position one bit. But it seems like, you know, the data that they're looking at. You know, might be something where it's like, all right, the damage is already done. So you got to either reverse course quickly the other way to kind of, you know, try to help or, or what. But, um, you know, I, I think just because we're dealing with like, you know, very comp like humans and the overall economy, it's tough to get one current data and two, um, you know, the data is essentially like, you know, you're backwards looking. So in a sense, do you do you think that that mindset is is almost flawed in a sense? Or do you uh, I mean, I guess, is this just kind of like the best that we can do at this point? Um, you know, I, I don't fault the fault the Fed for being data dependent. I, I don't, they I don't think they should be forecasting anything. Um you know, I mean, they, they do talk and they have like an open source dialogue with the street. Um, I'm surprised they don't kind of, I mean, the market is basically calling bluff, right? We, there was Fed rate hikes priced in, you know, like when they kept on like pushing rate hikes, but the market was like calling bluff on it. You know, it'd be good for them to kind of, um, you know, I think listen more to the street, but I don't know, like, it's hard to imagine in this day and age, like tell us what data you're looking at. Like what are your indicators? Like, you know, it still feels like it's a big guessing game with them. And, you know, I, I don't see why it has to be proprietary, to be honest. I think they should be like very free with, okay, here's what we're looking at. If this gets to that, then we'll pause. Like it's like this big intellectual debate constantly with the Fed. And um, I, I think they could be a little bit more markets oriented as opposed to just pure, you know, economist and, you know, just data, you know. Yeah. So that's my view. Yeah. But uh, I guess in a sense, the Fed is not supposed to be, I guess, uh, making decisions based on the market. But do you think that uh, I guess, you know, they in it, I mean, they are connected, right? The, the market, if, uh, you know, the economy's everything's going well, you know, interest rates are low. You know, we saw like 2010, you could, you know, we had Davy Day Trader there on, uh, 
you know, Twitter, Twitter Live or Periscope or wherever it was, just essentially throwing out Scrabble letters at uh, to get a ticker and it would just keep shooting on up. So, um, you know, in a sense, like it seems like based on the macro environment, that's where you kind of have to, you know, I guess make your plays in the market. Um, but, you know, the Fed theoretically isn't looking at the market. Right. But um, in it, like, I guess this is a two part question in a sense when, um, you know, obviously the market, everything's are going well. You know, the Fed just kind of let everything just go, even though, you know, obviously having a, a an inflated interest rate of, or not a deflated interest rate at near zero or ex- essentially zero for that decade, you know, was problematic. And then, uh, you know, on the flip side, like, you know, the, the market is kind of, uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, uh, le- um, I guess melting up in a sense here towards the end of the year um, or through the second quarter. And, uh, you know, it, it does seem like there is some like potential uh, issues with the consumer now. Um, are all those issues causing like unemployment or any, anything else like that? It doesn't seem to be the case, but um, you know, that, that is something that they're, they're looking to get. So um, I guess this is kind of a long winded way to say like, you know, uh, I, I guess, why do you think that the Fed should start to take into account like what the market is looking at and, you know, some, how, how people are kind of, uh, I guess, analyzing the overall macro economy? I'm not sure if I understand your question. Yeah, I mean, I'm just asking, you know, you know, why do you think that uh, the Fed should start to look a little bit more closely at the market to make these decisions opposed to, you know, I guess some of the more data dependent um, ways that they. No, I, I think like they definitely watch the S&P. That's for sure. Um, I, I think that's the problem is that like they they're data dependent and they do follow the the market. But I just think like, let us know what models you're looking at. What are your indicators? And let us all get on the same page. Like, why is there a difference between the, the dot plot and what they say they're going to do with rates where how many uh, rate cuts are priced in by like the bond market? Like there, you know, there's just, there's no reason to have a disconnect is the point. So just I it's 2023. It. Let's be transparent. Why does it have to be secretive? They're not a quant, they're not a quant hedge fund. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like at this point, like, you know, they're, they're not going to make any, any ways or be uh, transparent in a sense, because, you know, then people will kind of trade off of that transparency. Right. I mean, once people, uh, you know, can kind of get that data, but I mean, that would also assume that markets aren't manipulated when, you know, in a sense that they they probably are. Right. I mean, um, uh, whether it's uh, by, by the fed or by, you know, that some of the bigger, big hedge fund guys in a sense too. So, um, but, uh, you know, you, you said that you think that there were sessions being uh, punted down the road, so to speak. Um, so I guess it, I'm going to put you on the hot seat here. Where do you when do you kind of see this, I guess, uh, all coming to light? Or um, do you see it kind of being, a, I guess, a soft landing, hard landing, no landing, that kind of uh, aspect? Um, here's what I think, Brandon. I think that you have rolling recessions across different segments of the market, across different points in time. I think last year was all about the long duration asset, which was screaming for a recession, long dated bonds, horrific returns, crypto, horrific returns, uh, disruptive growth ETFs, horrific returns. This year it was, you know, the regional banks, you know, impacted by all the Fed fund increases, so I just think there's going to be pockets 
the broad S and P is kind of hanging in there. So it looks like things are perfectly fine, but I know under the hood, there's a dichotomy, right? You've got, you know, commodities, which fell off a cliff, you know, oil, which is down quite a bit. So I think, you know, there's parts of the economy that have crashed and burned, right? Long dated bonds, long duration assets last year, regional banks. I mean, some regional banks went extinct, right? Like that's huge, right? So I just don't know if like you're going to get like the entire S&P down again, 20, 25%, like it was, you know, you know, like it was last year. So to have two back-to-back down 25% years is very, very rare. So. Yeah. And, and that, that's a very fair point, you know, in a sense, but um, I got to ask this before, before I let you go, are we uh, like, I'll let you plug your stuff. You, you are named Astoria advisors and Astoria is, uh, you know, the densely, most densely populated area in the country of Greek and Greek Americans. And I am part Greek myself. So I have to ask you, what's your favorite uh, Greek food spot in Astoria? And uh, do you have like a go-to like Greek dish that you love to eat? Um, I would say, <laughs> where, where, where do you work or live out of Brandon? So I'm so. in Tampa and when, and we have Tarpon Springs, like 45 minutes up the road, which is number two behind Astoria. So they always, every time I uh, talk with a New Yorker that's down here in Tampa, they always make sure to tell me like, Hey, if you want real Greek food, you can go to Tarpon. But if you want even better Greek food, you got to go all the way up to Astoria. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a place near Astoria Park called Agnanti, which is very good. It's where like the locals would go. I mean, it's a touristy place, um, Kiklades, which is very good. I'm not Greek, um, but uh, yeah, I did grow up in a very Greek community. It was very multicultural part of Queens, um, which is, you know, that's New York City for you. It's very ethnic, a lot of different cultures and nationalities. Uh, John, I think we I think we lost you here for a second. Okay, okay I'm back. You are. Yeah, there I'm you back. are. Yeah, but you were saying it's a very, I guess, ethnically diverse area. Well, that's New York City, and I guess I guess America for you, right? I mean, but even more so in New York, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, well, John, you've been uh, very generous with your time and uh, kind of going through, you know, your mindset on the overall market, um, you know, some a couple of your ETFs, the inflationary time and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I really appreciate you coming on. Why don't you uh, tell everybody where they can learn a little bit more about Astoria Advisors and yourself? Sure. So uh, AstoriaAdvisors.com uh, is our website. You can follow me on Twitter at Astoria Advisors. And that's uh, A-S-T-O-R-I-A-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. Awesome. And I'll put the, all that in the show notes as well as uh, your Twitter handle. You didn't you didn't plug that in there as well. Is that uh, just uh, Astoria Advisors as well or no? That's, that's my Twitter handle. Yeah, that's my Twitter handle. Okay, awesome. So I'll put that all in the show notes as well. So everybody be sure to check out Astoria Advisors. And uh, yeah, check out those Greek restaurants you, you were naming, dude. I'm, I'm getting a little hungry just talking about it. So <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And All right. Thank you, Brandon.